Hello, and welcome finally to Skeptics in the Pub. Sorry to keep you waiting. You should realize that as skeptics, we don't care about science and technology. We are joined tonight by the lovely Elaine Fox, who is here on my right. Due to technical issues, her presentation on optimism will be in dreary black and white. Um, We apologize for this. It's not intended as any kind of performance. Um, Just try to ignore the obvious irony there. Um, Elaine is going to talk for sort of 40, 45 minutes. Um, After that, we're going to take a break as usual. Um, Please turn off your phones or rather silence them and tweet about this, the hashtag Oxford Skeptics. Um, After she's finished talking, we're going to take a 20-minute break. Uh, You can take advantage of the bar service that we have here uh, and also please make a donation just to support us of two, three pounds into the jug that you see being waved at the back. One more time? Okay. Um, I think that's all I need to say. I do have a couple of... Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, the other thing, there will be a couple of another announcements in the second half, but Elaine does have books to sell on this topic over at the back for eight pounds. Eight pounds, definitely. Um, I think that's all for the moment then. So, um, welcome, Elaine. Okay, thanks very much. Shall I use the microphone? Or... Okay. Well, thank you very much. I do apologise for the, uh, the black and white screen. As I, I do have nice yellows and blues on my computer screen here, but for some reason the projector doesn't want to show you in colours. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about tonight, really, is um, really what's been central to my own research. I work in psychology and neuroscience, and um, the, the key question, really, that I've been looking at is, why are we dif- so different from each other? I'm sure we all know people who can deal with whatever life throws at them. No matter what happens, they seem to be able to cope with it. They don't, they're not flattened by anything. Whereas other people seem to really worry a lot about things. They look at the dark side rather than the bright side. They look at what might go wrong rather than what might go right. So what, why is it that we differ from each other in so many ways? And are there different brain systems involved? Well, I call our rainy brain and our sunny brain. So what underlies the rainy brain, which is the roots of pessimism, and the sunny brain, which is the roots of optimism? Well, we can go right back to the beginnings of experimental psychology, really, to the founder of experimental psychology, who was William James. And he really looked at this question of how does the human infant or any um, infant, in fact, know what to attend to in the world around us. You know, when you think of what he called the blooming, buzzing confusion, if you think of a, a newborn baby, for example, there's a whole cacophony of sounds. There might be cars outside. There might be planes overhead, central heating going, human voices, the radio. You can imagine, just in terms of sounds, the, the amount of information that's around. How on earth does the infant know what's the signal and what's the noise? What's worth paying attention to and what's safe to ignore? Well, it probably doesn't come as much of a surprise to find that nature gives us a helping hand in this. We don't come into the world as a blank slate. We, we, nature does help us in one sense. And there's two big categories, if you like, of things that our brain naturally tunes into. And that's things that are going to harm us in some way, so danger signals, um, on the one hand, will always pull our attention, and the other kind of big category are things that might um, are good for us in some way. 
So in other words, our brain is naturally pulled in towards danger signals and towards reward signals. So we've evolved in our brains a very ancient fear system, um, which has been there and we share with most creatures on, on the planet, and a pleasure system. And these two systems basically pull us, towards, uh, pull us away from the things that might harm us and pull us towards the things that are good for us. So my argument in the book Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain is that these are the two roots, if you like, of what ultimately become pessimistic mindsets and optimistic mindsets. So just to um, give you a little bit of anatomy, and as I said, this is in in nice colour, but unfortunately you're you're seeing it in in black and white. I don't know why this happened. It's never happened before, actually, but uh, it's obviously Oxford sceptics don't like uh, things in bright colours. But basically, as I said, the, the rainy brain, which is the root of our pessimistic mindset, at the very heart of that is this structure in the brain called the amygdala. Sorry if I can figure out the the amygdala here, which is a tiny little structure. Whoops, sorry. Sorry about that. So the amygdala is this structure here, which is basically an ancient fear system. It's a tiny little thing. It's about the size of your thumbnail. We've got one on each side of our head. Just if you kind of went into your brain just above your ear, towards the center of your head, that's where we actually have two amygdalas, but one on each side. But generally, it's just called the amygdala. And it's basically like the brain's alarm system. It basically sends out an alarm anytime we sense danger. And what I call the rainy brain circuit is a whole set of circuits that go from the amygdala, this ancient fear system, up to the the prefrontal cortex up here, which is the the newer part of our brain in evolutionary terms. And this kind of set of um, networks, if you like, works very much like an accelerator and a brake. So the amygdala sends off an alarm signal, and then the prefrontal cortex dampens that down a little bit. So if you go to the zoo, for example, and you see a snake or some dangerous creature behind a cage or behind glass, the amygdala will almost certainly fire out an alarm signal. It's a very ancient evolutionary signal. But the prefrontal cortex will realize that actually there's not really any danger here, so it will kind of dampen down the natural amygdala reaction. I don't know if you can see it on the on the graph here, but interesting, anatomically, we actually have more connections that go from the amygdala up to the newer parts of our brain than go in the opposite direction. And that's really kind of interesting because it shows us that the amygdala has far more control over the rest of the brain than the rest of the brain has over the amygdala. So for example, when if somebody's afraid of spiders, for example, and they see a spider in the bath, um, the reason they can be frozen in terror, even though they know there isn't any real danger, is because the amygdala just has, has so many more connections to the rest of the brain, it can really say, switch off everything and pay attention to this. It's an ancient, very powerful danger signal. So that's what I call kind of the rainy brain, which is, if you like, the, the roots of the of, of how pessimism first starts developing. And then on the other side, we've got the sunny brain, which again works in a very similar way. Um, again, there's a very ancient structure called the nucleus accumbens this time, which is basically the brain's reward system. This pulls us towards things like um, it's, it's dopamine-related, so anything that's really kind of good for us in, in any way, anything that feels pleasurable, um, you know, drugs, sex, lots of things, you know, kicks start the um, the nucleus accumbens or the reward center. And it works in a very similar way um, in terms of the circuit. So again, there are nerve fibers going from there up to the prefrontal cortex. And again, it works very much like an accelerator and a brake. 
The interesting thing with the um, sunny brain system is that you don't have the same difference in terms of fibres going from the lower part of the brain to the higher part. So the pleasure system, probably quite sensibly, doesn't have as much control over the rest of the brain as the fear system does. So in other words, fear will always trump pleasure. So things that are dangerous will always pull our attention much more than things that are very pleasurable. And um, as I say in the book, it's the difference between um, eating lunch or being lunch. So you can imagine in ancient evolutionary times, it was very important for us, it was far more important to detect a potential predator or a potential danger than it was to find your lunch. So the fear system is always going to be just that bit more powerful than the, the pleasure system. And just to give you an example of this, I've got a little video here, and I hope the sound is all right. Um, it just demonstrates how powerful our ancient fear system is. And it's quite a funny little clip of a, um, a very suave TV presenter in America who is completely undone by his, his, his ancient fear system. So I'll just play it, and hopefully um, the sound will be all right. So you just need to look quite carefully at this. It doesn't go on for too long. completely undone there by his by his, his fear system. So, so we know that we have these two kind of sets of networks in the brain, really, and, and the argument we make is that these, um, this ancient fear system, the, the heart of the rainy brain and the sunny brain, basically underlie a whole range of attentional biases, as we call them. In other words, our brain will tune in very naturally to both danger signals and to pleasure systems. But of course, we, we differ a lot in these. Some people are much more tuned in to potential threat, and some are much more tuned in to potential pleasure. And a lot of the work that I do is with people with, say, anxiety disorders and depression. And what we find is that there's actually very profound um, cognitive biases, as we call them. So in other words, people with depression will selectively remember much more negative information than positive information. Um, and particularly people with anxiety will be much more vigilant for um, threat cues and danger signals. So if they open their local paper, for example, they're much more likely to notice all the negative stories rather than the, the good news stories. So people differ in the degree to which we have these kind of biases. So how do we go about measuring this in the lab? Well, I'll just give you a, a, a quick example of the kind of experimental task we use to really try and study these kind of biases. So what we do is we generally bring people into the lab um, and we present things on a computer screen. Um, so I'll just give you an example of this one. You'll see two images flash up on the computer screen and then a little target appears either the right or the left and people just have to press a button as quickly as they can. So I'll just, if you just watch it, um, you'll get a kind of idea of what happens. 
So two things appear very quickly, then a target appears, and the person has to just press a button. Now, that's much, much slower than would happen in the real experiment. Normally, we, we present things very, very quickly. People do maybe several hundred trials like that. And we either can measure what's going on in people's brains, measure the reaction times as they're doing that kind of task. And what we find is... Um, um, again, this is a bit um, difficult to explain in black and white because these lines were in different colours. But if I show, <laughs> if I, <laughs> if I show you show you with this, this is actually the high anxiety um, line here. So this is really how quickly people press that button when the target appeared in either a threatening location. So that just means so basically the, the two images that are presented, one is say something like a spider or a snake or something threatening, and the other is something neutral. So when the target appears in the location of the threatening. Um, object, people with high levels of anxiety are faster to respond compared to when the target appeared in the neutral location. Now these aren't clinically anxious people, these are just a student population who reported relatively high levels of anxiety on on a, a standard questionnaire. So you can see the difference isn't great. These are millisecond differences here. So we're only looking at a, say, about a 40 millisecond difference. But the theory is that this difference basically means that there's a, a, a slight little kind of difference in terms of how people are tuned into negative more than positive. And even though it might only be small, it might only be you know, 40, 50 milliseconds, over time, if you imagine like there might be hundreds of times a day, certainly hundreds, thousands of times a month, where you have these slight biases. So the argument is that the brain has effectively been trained to tune into the negative just that little bit more than the positive. And there's a lot of evidence now showing that that kind of brain training, if you like, is actually what underlies the development of a very pessimistic mindset, which can ultimately involve in, into things like anxiety and depression. So it's a little bit like, you know, these kind of biases may be tiny. But over time, they really kind of strengthen those um, circuits within the brain um, to the point where people are instantly tuning in very quickly to negative material, say more than positive material. And this is one of the key differences we find between, um, say, people who are very optimistic and people who are very pessimistic. Now, the reason why we're interested in these low-level biases is firstly because they do seem to be very important in the development of, say, anxiety and depression, for example, but also we know that they also underlie the development of our belief systems. So the kind of beliefs we have about the world around us, they're really kind of fed into, if you like, by these kind of very subliminal-level biases that are going on all the time outside our, our awareness. So I'll just tell you a little, um, give you an example of how our beliefs can really make a big difference to our health and our well-being in, in general. Um, now, you may not believe me, but there is actually a lot of evidence now that, in fact, um, what we believe does make a big difference to how well we are to our physical health. Um, there's lots of evidence from all sorts of areas from that. But I'll just give you one example. When I was doing some background research from the book, I read a lot through the old medical texts, and there's some wonderful stories. Um, I think in, way back in the 20s and 30s, doctors tended to be also kind of very much renaissance men and women, and they, they wrote very long essays about their patients and different things that happened. So you get some wonderful stories in there. And one story was um, that really illustrates very nicely, I think, this the power of belief in terms of our health, is the story of a guy called Vance Fenders. Now, Vance Fenders lived in Alabama in, a, I think it was about the 1920s, and there was a famous doctor there at the time who... Um, 
who basically, um, so basically this, this guy, Fans Fenders, came into the hospital. He'd been in, in there for about two weeks and was clearly doing very poorly. He was clearly dying. He was just declining. And the doctors didn't really know what um, to do. They just had no idea what was wrong with him. They gave him all the tests and couldn't actually find anything wrong. So eventually, as things got worse and worse, um, Fans Fenders' wife told the doctor what had actually happened. And she said, what had happened about two weeks before, Fans had gone to the graveyard to meet with a local witch doctor. And food was a very big thing in, in those days. And she didn't know what had happened, but she said that basically Fans and the witch doctor had a big argument. They actually had a fight in the graveyard, during which the witch doctor threw some foul-smelling liquid over Fans and told him, you've been voodooed, you're going to die, and there's nothing the doctors will be able to do to save you. So she said Fans came straight home, was completely terrified, and had gone into physical decline ever since. So the doctor thought long and hard about you know, what to do about this. And he finally said, he said, okay, he summoned all the family back the next day. He said he wanted all Fance's family to come back around his bedside. And he told them, when they came around, he told them that he'd managed to talk to the witch doctor and had actually forced the witch doctor to tell him what he'd actually done. He said, Fance, what had happened was, when he threw that foul-smelling liquid over you, there was actually lizard eggs in that liquid. And some of them have managed to get into your stomach, and the lizards are now growing in your stomach and eating your insides. So you can imagine the stunned silence of all the family around the bedside. So in the middle of all of this, he pronounced that he, he was now going to inject fans with some... Um, some chemical that would get rid of this lizard. He said, the main thing is, fans, we have to get rid of this lizard. So at that stage, he summoned his nurse in, who came in with a very dramatic syringe filled with some, some dark liquid. So as he was injecting this into fans' arm, it was actually an emetic, so it, it meant that fans started vomiting as soon as, as, he, as he injected it. In the middle of all this confusion, the doctor leant down and he took out a large lizard that he'd had in his sports bag <laughs> under the bed. <laughs> and he, he shook it, he shook it over Fans said, look, Fans, look, see, see what's happened, see what's come out of you. He said, you'll be fine now, we've managed to get rid of the lizard. Apparently, Fans fell back in, 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 in terror on the bed, and fell asleep for about 24 hours, woke up and went to live and died as an old man about 80 years of age many, many years later. So I think it's a very dramatic story and absolutely true. It's totally verified. Um, but I think it shows us two things. It shows us, firstly, how, how our beliefs can absolutely make us ill. In Fancy's case, there's no question that his belief that the witch doctor had fooded him made him very, very ill. But also, his belief that the um, lizard had now been removed from him it brought him back to good health again. So the well-known placebo effect. So in other words, our beliefs really can have a very powerful impact on our, our physical well-being. Okay, so let's just go on then. So basically, I've been trying to talk a little bit about the kind of mechanisms that we think underlie the roots, if you like, of optimism and pessimism. And I think the whole belief systems that go with optimism and pessimism do have an impact on our health and our well-being in many ways. So before we go on and look at some of the evidence of that, I thought, well, we'd just do a little test and see how optimistic or pessimistic typical skeptics in the, in the pub might be. So I've just got together six questions, or six simple questions. Um, you can either write down the answers, but actually it's just six questions on a one to five scale, so you just need to keep the figures in your head and just add them together. So it should be pretty straightforward. So as I said, these, this isn't a standardized scale, I should say. What I've done is I've just taken a few questions from a couple of other standardized scales, and it just gives a kind of an indication of how optimistic or pessimistic people might be. 
So basically, I'm going to give you six questions, and on each one, I just want you to give yourself a number. So if you disagree a lot with the question, you give yourself a one. If you disagree, you give yourself a two. If you're somewhere in the middle, you don't particularly agree or disagree, it's a three. If you agree, it's four. And if you strongly agree, you give yourself a five. Okay, so you just need to keep that number in your head and just add it to each number so you'll end up with a, a total score at the end of six questions. So the first one then, so in uncertain times, I usually expect the best. Okay, so if you strongly agree with that, give yourself a five. If you totally disagree with that, give yourself a one. Okay, so you've got your number in your head, just keep that in your head, and we go on to the next one. I enjoy my friends a lot. So again, if you agree with that, give yourself a four. If you agree a lot, give yourself a five. And so just add that number to the previous number. Okay, the next one is an interesting one that uh, divides quite a lot of people. So I would take off on a trip with no pre-planned routes or timetables. So in other words, if your holidays are coming up, how likely is it that you, you just go down to the train station, get the next train that comes, and just keep going with no particular plan, just see where life takes you, basically. Um, if you would absolutely love doing that, I think that would be great, give yourself a five. If you absolutely would never dream of doing something like that, you'd have to plan ahead, give yourself a one, or somewhere in the middle. Okay, so you're just adding your numbers together. So you should have a total score now in your head. Okay, number four. I don't get upset too easily. So again, if you disagree a lot, give yourself a one. Somewhere in the middle. Okay. Number five. I get restless when I spend too much time at home. Okay, so hopefully you should have a, a score in your head now. And finally, the last one. I usually count on good things happening to me. Okay, so if you agree a lot, five, or somewhere down the middle. Okay, so um, all of you now should have, have some numbers in your head. So let's just see. First of all, did anybody score over 28? No? Oh, yes, we've got one in the back. Okay, so we've got one extreme optimist in the back. So what about, did anybody score um, below eight, eight or below Okay, no, that's good. That would be extreme pessimist. So let's see. So how about maybe between, say, about um, 18 up to 24? How many people scored? Okay, that's the vast majority scored in that range. And what about over 24? How many? Okay, so there's a couple more there. Okay, so it looks like that um, the, the basically kind of 18 and above is basically mildly optimistic. And actually what you find is that the vast majority of people are slightly more optimistic than pessimistic. We often think that pessimism is, is much more common. But actually when all of these surveys are done all around the world, it shows that actually most people are pretty much on the optimistic side. So it seems we have a few extreme optimists here. Most people are mildly optimistic um, and, and nobody is extremely pessimistic. So that's, that's probably quite a good thing. Okay, that's just a bit of a fun questionnaire. As I said, there are kind of standardized questionnaires, and there are some in the book which are more standardized to measure some of the different components of optimism. So I think one of the things that is kind of nice to really look at, or to really, and one of the things I really wanted to ask in the book, was, first of all, really, what is optimism, and, and is it good for us? You know, we hear a lot about um, you know, lots of things are claimed for optimism, that it'll do all sorts of things for health and our well-being. Is that really true? Is there really any scientific evidence to back that up? 
Well, I think one of the really interesting things is that when we think about optimism, we often think just about positive thinking. So just if you think positively, you know, that is optimism. Actually, optimism is a much more complex um, concept than that. And the really interesting thing is I think there is evidence that optimism is, does benefit our health in many ways. But interestingly enough, it's not to do with the positive thinking, it's to do with the other components of optimism. So, for example, one of the key components of optimism are, is positive actions. So one of the things that really I talk a lot about in, in Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain, is that you know, it's, it's a lot more to do with what people do rather than necessarily just in what they think. Now, obviously, those two things are related. I mean, often if somebody is, is very positive in terms of what they think, they'll often engage in lots of positive actions as well. But the two are actually separable. Um, so, for example, there's a lot of, you might have seen, there's a lot of stuff in the media recently about some recent research showing that if you force people to smile, if people actually physically are forced into a smile, they do begin to feel a bit happier after a while. And that's absolutely true. The brain detects you know, the physical movements as, some, as, as happiness. So in other words, the action comes first, and then we get the feeling. Going right back to William James again, who is the founder of experimental psychology in, in the US, he famously said, you know, we don't run because we're afraid. We're afraid because we run. He said the action comes first, and then the emotional feelings comes afterwards. And there's lots and lots of evidence for that. So that's a kind of really interesting element, I think, that you know, if you act like an optimist, the chances are you will begin to develop more um, optimistic thinking. So the optimistic thinking, or the positive thinking in itself, isn't necessarily the key component. Another aspect of optimism that's very important is um, persistence, simply sticking at a task for a little bit longer. Again, there's a lot of evidence from all sorts of different areas that that's the case. There was one very nice study that was done in the US um, a number of years ago, and we replicate this almost every year in lab classes. So with second-year students, we demonstrate this as a very nice demonstration. Very, very simple experiment to do. We simply divide people into those who score fairly high on optimism scales and very low on optimism scales, and we give them a simple anagram test. So just a jumble of letters, and they have to just unscramble the letters into an English word as quickly as they can. After about three or four of these, one of the um, jumble of letters is actually impossible. So there's no um, solution whatsoever. It's six letters, but there's actually no word you can come up with. Um, and what you find is, very simply, just take how long does it take before the person gives up? Time after time, we find the optimists will take about twice as long before they give up um, compared to the pessimists. So again, a very simple experiment, but it replicates time and time again. And there's lots of work done in, in the business world and in other areas showing that actually people who are very optimistic tend to have this level of persistence. Now again, that's something that is separate from positive thinking. Often they kind of do go hand in hand, but actually it is something that's quite different. Another component of optimism is um, having a sense of control over what happens to you. So a lot of the time, if people are very pessimistic, particularly if people are prone to depression, a very key thing is that they feel you know, things happen, they're bounced around in the world, things happen, and they really have no control at all over what happens to them. Someone who's very optimistic will have a really strong sense of having some control over their own destiny. And even if it's an illusion, there's a lot of evidence that that's actually really a, a quite a lot of benefit, benefit to us. And again, there's lots of experimental evidence which I've talked about that really um, demonstrates that. So I think it's always important to remember to take that into account when we're really looking at the evidence that optimism might be good for us or not. Because I think the evidence is there, but it's often to do with these other components of optimism rather than just positive thinking. 
Okay, now just, um, as I said, I haven't got time really to talk about a lot of the studies and a lot of the research, but I'll tell you about one pretty nice study that was done, that was published um, about 10 years ago now. But it was a kind of a very nice study. It basically looked at, they found diaries of young women who had joined Catholic convents in the US in the 1930s. So these were a bunch of young women in their 20s when they joined a convent um, to be Catholic nuns. All of these women had kept quite extensive diaries. So the researchers had access to all of these diaries. And what they very simply did was they divided the diaries into those that seemed very upbeat and optimistic and those that seemed very pessimistic and very gloomy. So it's not the best way necessarily of dividing people into optimists and pessimists. But given the kind of data, if you like, they had, it, you know, it, was, it was quite an interesting way of doing that. And what they then did, those people... So this is obviously about 70 years later. So they had a lot of the medical records of all of these women all of, through all of those years. All of the women were now you know, over 75 years. Some of them were up to 95 years of age. And as I said, they had lots of access to all of the medical records and they could track their health through all those years. And what they... The other thing about this study was it was a very nice study in the sense that all of these women lived fairly similar lifestyles, really. Because they were Catholic nuns, they lived in convents, they didn't tend to drink alcohol, they didn't tend to smoke, and they tended to, you know, um, get lots of sleep and, and all the rest of it, and had a fairly similar type of lifestyles. But what they found was that overall, the nuns who had had much more optimistic and upbeat diaries when they were in their 20s had a much better health all the way through their lives. But even more um, startling was they found that the average difference in lifespan was about 10 years. Obviously, a lot of the nuns had now died, but some were still alive. And on average, the optimistic nuns lived about 10 years longer. Now, obviously, there's lots of you know, problems with that kind of study, but I think it shows a difference between optimist and pessimist and over the whole lifespan, and lots of other studies um, that have really been more prospective, which have kind of better control, have really, have really verified that. So I think it, there is a lot of evidence um, that optimism can be very good for us, but as I said, I don't think it's just to do with positive thinking. It's to do with a lot of the other components of optimism. So what are the triggers then? So what are the triggers of whether somebody is optimistic or develops this kind of sunny brain system or, or the rainy brain system? Well, obviously, we know that genetics are important, so our genes definitely do make a difference to our temperament. But what happens to us um, is also very important. And the recent science suggests that it's not some kind of... Um, old-fashioned notion of, you know, a, a little bit of the percentage is explained by genes and another bit is explained by the environment and what happens to us. It's very much how these two things interact together and interleave together to influence these kind of rainy brain systems or, or sunny brain systems. And maybe to explain that, I can just talk about one particular study that I think illustrates that quite nicely. So first of all, as we all know, we all um, inherit our DNA. So we have a certain set of genes that we inherit. What we now know is that there's things called these um, SNPs, as they're called, or single nucleoid um, polymorphisms. These are just minor variations in very common genes. So we're not talking about genetic mutations. This, these are genes all of us share. And usually these genes come in either short forms or long forms. So we might inherit, say, a short form from our mother, a long form from our father, in which case we'd have a short and a long. So you can either have two short of, of say, a particular gene, two long, or one of each. Okay, so it's, you know, there's usually three different genotypes on, on a lot of these different types of genes. Now, over, even though these differences are quite subtle, 
they do have subtle differences on brain chemistry, so they can influence the whole balance of neurotransmitters, for example. And again, a little bit like the cognitive biases, over time that can make quite a profound difference. So a lot of research has looked at one particular gene called the serotonin transporter gene, which is one of these genes that comes in this long and short versions. Um, this is some work that I did myself, looking at this in terms of attentional biases. And what we found was that people, again, these are this is a student population, so not any particularly special population, but a student population... Those who had um, the short version of this gene tended to show a strong bias towards negative kind of material in these kind of attentional probe tasks, um, whereas people with the longer version of the gene showed a strong bias towards more positive. So we found quite a difference in the attentional bias. And there's a very nice study that was published um, a number of years ago now um, by Caspi and Moffat and colleagues at the Institute of Psychiatry in, in London. And what they did was they were interested, and for various biological reasons, they hypothesized that people with a short version of this serotonin transporter gene should be at higher risk of developing clinical depression. So what they did to try and answer this question is they followed a fairly large group of people. I think it's, yeah, so 847 volunteers. They followed them over a 23-year period. So they first started the study when all of the volunteers were toddlers, so they were only three years of age. So they, they recruited you know, 847 people into the study, and then they followed them until everybody's age 26. And they really wanted to find out whether people with a shorter version of the gene would be at higher risk of, of depression. And what they did was, every single year of those 23 years, they brought everybody back in, they did a very extensive medical examination, they did all sorts of tests, they interviewed people very extensively about what was going on in their lives at the time, you know, when they got into their teens, for example, they talked about relationships breaking up, new relationships, parents dying, you know, so good things and bad things. They took very, very extensive records of what was going on in people's lives, as well as taking lots of medical records and so on. What they found was, at the end of the 26 years, their big question was, they, they were obviously interested in, in predicting rate of depression. So they found in their sample, 147 people actually were diagnosed with clinical depression. So the big question was, would um, those with a shorter version of the gene um, you know, have a higher risk of depression? When they first looked at the evidence, they found there was absolutely no difference. Just as many people with a long version of this serotonin transporter gene had depression compared to those with a shorter version of the gene. So you can imagine having done the study for 23 years, it must have been a pretty disappointing result to find that actually the gene didn't seem to make any difference. However, the picture changed dramatically where they then took into account the kind of things that had happened to people during all of that 23 years. What they found was that people who had had four or more really pretty negative things happen to them, so say, like, for example, they lost their parent when they were very young or a major accident, so like four, four or more pretty major negative events happening. If, if, if that had happened and people had the short version of the gene, then their risk of depression was far, far higher than the average. Whereas if, if they'd had four or more of these very negative life events and had the long version of their gene, the risk of depression didn't increase at all. So that's a really interesting study because I think it shows us two really important things. It first of all shows us that the gene on its own 
doesn't predict the depression. It was only the gene in relation to having four or more negative events. But what's often forgotten in this is it also shows us that the life events on their own isn't enough. So there are lots of people who had four or more negative life events, but they didn't develop depression if they had the longer version of the gene. So it shows us very much it's, it's what particular version of a gene and what happens to us can form either very toxic or very beneficial kind of combinations. So the genes on their own aren't our destiny, if you like. It's very much how they interleave and interact with what happens to us as, as, we, as we live our lives. Um, I'll give you another example, maybe slightly more appropriate for um, the environment we're in at the moment. This is a study done in Holland where they were interested in looking at, um, there's a gene called the D4, the dopamine 4 gene, you can see up here. And the dopamine 4 gene is another SNP. It has another SNP, so you get a long and a short version. It's a reward-related gene, and people with the long version of this gene seem to be far more sensitive to alcohol and far more likely to drink very heavily compared to people with the, the shorter version of the gene. So the researchers really wanted to really look at this. So what they did was they um, got people into an experiment the key part of the experiment was actually after people came in and did something totally unrelated like a memory task or, or a perception task, and then they were asked to wait. They were told they had to wait for about an hour before the next part of the experiment. So when they were waiting, what the researchers had done is it set up the conditions in the waiting room. So every person who was taking part in the study was there with a number of different confederates. Okay, so sometimes the confederates, um, there was desks, there was tables laid out, and sometimes there was soft drinks, sometimes there was a mixture of alcohol and, and soft drinks. The key um, thing they were manipulating was that sometimes the confederates only drank the soft drinks, so they'd only go for the Coke or the orange juice, they never touched the alcohol. So the, so the key question was, what would the f subjects do? What would the volunteers do? In some tables, the, the confederates kind of mixed. There was they might take a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of soft drinks. It was a bit mixed. And in the, in the third one, it was much more stronger drinking. Everyone had alcohol and they drank a lot more. So the key question was, would this influence people with the different versions of the dopamine 4 gene? And what they found was in the control condition, um, so again here this on this axis... So this is, uh, on this axis here is the amount of alcohol actually drunk. So this is the amount of alcohol that the um, participants in the study actually um, actually drank. In the control condition where um, the Confederates weren't drinking anti any alcohol, you can see that there's no difference at all between those with the, the short version of this dopamine gene or the long version of the dopamine gene. In the light drinking um, condition, it almost went the opposite direction, but it wasn't actually statistically significant. But you can see in the heavy drinking condition, now there's a really big difference. Now people with the long version of the gene are consuming far more alcohol than people with the shorter version of the gene. So once again, it's a nice step demonstration of these gene-environment interactions. This study is showing us that you know, the people with the long version of the gene aren't necessarily drinking heavily all the time. So it's not that as soon as they see alcohol, they're, they're, they're drinking more heavily. But as soon as other people are drinking relatively heavily, people with that version of the gene are much more prone to also drink very heavily. So again, it's a, it's a nice demonstration of these gene-environment interactions. So I think in all of this research, what we're finding again and again is that our genes are important. There's no question about that. The things that are happening to us are also very important, but it's very much how they kind of interact together. And my research and the research of lots of other people are really looking at how these gene-environment interactions influence the kind of brain systems that underlie the rainy brain or the sunny brain. So these subtle um, cognitive biases, as I was telling you about. So can we go about changing those biases? And of course, that's one of the really important 
areas of research now, we're actually looking at, well, saying, okay, given that we know that some of these biases can predispose people to develop anxiety and depression, for example, or if we can boost the more positive biases, we can boost people into, into more optimistic kind of lifestyle, which we know has certain health benefits. So how valid is that? How, how, how well um, can we actually do that? Well, again, we know that the human brain is is highly malleable, much more plastic than we ever imagined. When I was studying neuroscience many years ago in, in Dublin, um, we were told at the time that you know, once you got to the age of seven or so, your brain was more or less set in stone and really you know, it, it wouldn't change very much. That idea has been completely overturned in the last 10 years or so. And now we know that the brain is actually far more malleable than, than we ever thought. Um, there's a very nice study you may have come across that was um, done by people in London, Eleanor McGuire and her colleagues in London, where she tested um, people, the brains of people who were um, London cab drivers, so black cab drivers. So black cab dri drivers have to, have to pass a test called the knowledge. I'm not sure how familiar people are with this, but it's a really difficult exam um, that only about 40% of people, as far as I know, actually pass. And what it is, so basically, I think there's about 25,000 streets in London, and it, to to get a license to drive a black cab, you have to be able to navigate every single street. You have to know the shortest point between every um, any two streets from any, any point in London. So if you ever go to London, you might see people on little mopeds going around with maps in front of them. That's usually people um, training for the knowledge, you know, going around streets, really learning the, the navigation. So you can imagine it's a tremendous feat of spatial navigation. So Eleanor McGuire and her colleagues in London um, tested 16 cab drivers to see whether they would have larger hippocampus than um, non-cab drivers. Now, the hippocampus is a part of the brain that we know underlies memory, and spatial memory in particular. So what she found was there was actually quite a strong difference. So the black cab drivers had a much bigger hippocampus than the non-black cab drivers. Now, on one level, you might say, well, that's very interesting. But, of course, the big flaw in that kind of study is that maybe because they had very good spatial um, memory, that's exactly why they became cab drivers. So it's not particularly surprising. So in her next study, what she did was she actually followed a group of young men. I think they were almost were all men. As they were learning the knowledge and as they were going through, and she actually followed them for, I think, up to about four or five years. And what she found was that the more they learned and the more they practiced map reading and spatial navigation, the larger the hippocampus actually became. Came. So in other words, what they were learning led to quite a dramatic change in that particular part of the brain that underlies spatial memory. The same kind of thing has been found with musicians. If somebody is a very skilled musician, the more they learn, the more particular areas of the brain will develop and, and strengthen. So this whole area of neuroplasticity is now, I think, very well established. So what myself and other people are looking at now is whether we can apply these principles of neuroplasticity to the mechanisms underlying optimism and pessimism. So the rainy brain systems and the sunny brain systems does the same kind of hold true. And it does seem that that is the case, that we can actually shift um, the kind of biases and the kind of brain states that underlie optimism and pessimism. So I'll just quickly explain one type of technique that we're looking at, which is called cognitive bias modification. And this is really a very simple computerized task which aims at trying to shift people's biases towards the more positive, for example. So just to, so we normally have two groups of people. I'll just explain it very quickly. So one group of people we train to try and orient towards negative information. The other group we try and train towards more positive information. We use a very simple, similar task. Sorry, I should point this out, should I? 
we use a very similar task to the, um, the probe task I showed you at the beginning. So in this case, people are being trained to go towards the negative. So if you see there, two images come up, and the target always appears. 100% of the time, it appears where the negative image appears. So the idea is that on people's smartphones or iPads or whatever, you can do this on a very regular basis. And the idea is you're gradually being trained to you know, shift away from the positive and towards the negative. Although, on, actually, normally we would have the opposite of that. We'd have the positive training group, which is this one here. So you can see the po- it always appears where the positive is, and again, it appears where the positive is. Now, um, the interesting thing is that, the, um, first of all, in, in the normal experiment, we wouldn't have the words up. These are just lots of images. Some are positive, some are negative. But the key idea is that we're trying to change these habits of mind, because these biases are really just habits of mind which are quite difficult to shift. What we find very briefly is that we do get quite big shifts. Again, it's a bit tricky here with, the, with no colors. <laughs> so it's kind of, but basically, the bottom line is that people with the, low, um, the shorter version of that particular gene I was talking about earlier are much more responsive to these kind of tasks. So they learn to shift away from the um, negative far more quickly than others. Although everyone does. I mean, what we are finding in these studies is that we can actually shift people's biases. So if somebody has a very kind of strong bias, bias towards the negative, we can gradually over time shift that away to try and tune in more to the positive. And the brain circuits seem to follow that. So the the idea is that we can really change people's brains. Another area um, where uh, there's a lot of evidence that we can actually start to change our brain is in mindfulness meditation. And again, a lot of research on this goes on here in Oxford, um, up at the Warnford Hospital. There's a whole unit there looking at mindfulness meditation, particularly in relation to um, depression. So again, there is a lot of good scientific evidence there. So just to summarize then, I think there's obviously I've tried to cover quite a lot of of things this evening, but basically the argument really is that we have these very subtle biases that underlie, that are driven really by our fear system and our pleasure system, and they underlie the development of a whole network of circuits, which I call rainy brain and sunny brain circuits. And these can really underlie quite extreme pessimistic or optimistic type of circuits. Our genes obviously are important in that to some extent, as are the things that happen to us. Now, we can't really do much about our genetic inheritance, and we can't really do too much about our life environments, but the one thing we can do is we can start to try and change our biases. So there are lots of techniques we can do to try and change these kind of biases. And over time, the evidence is that we can do that, although it's a little bit like if you want to get physically fit, you need to go to the gym or go out walking or running on a, on a regular basis. The evidence also is if you do these kind of tasks on on a very regular basis, you can begin to get changes. So it's just a little video um, at the end, just looking at this idea of kind of changing our biases. But it's also a blatant doubt for my book as well, which you will be able to buy afterwards. <laughs> Okay, so not quite as good in black and white, actually, but, uh, but thanks very much. So it was... Okay, good sceptics of Oxford. We're now entering our second half and the question and answer section. Um, Elaine is coming up now. A um, few short announcements. First of all, I've actually been corrected. The bar will actually be open till the end. What I told you before was just a clever lie so you'd spend more money. 
speaking of false information, um, the lovely Joe, who is at the back, um, is running a small campaign against a publication called What Doctors Don't Tell You magazine. Uh, they're currently running a story about taking vitamin C curing HIV-AIDS. So if you see that magazine in the store, you might want to have a word with the manager. It's not a nice story. Um, finally, the next event that we're going to be running uh, will actually be next week. Um, we're just heading into the start of Oxford Think Week, which we do together with the local atheists and humanists and other people. Um, Annie, who is there with the red hair, wave, um, will tell you more about this. But if you come here in exactly a week, 7 p.m. next Wednesday, uh, the wonderful Chris French will be in this room doing a talk about ghosts and the supernatural. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be good. Uh, I think that's all. Um, so do remember to make your donations if you haven't already. £3 is what we like. And feel free to buy books at the end if you haven't. Um, in the meantime... Over to Jane. Um, Jane? No, Elaine. Sorry. <laughs> we do this. This is a tradition. We give all our speakers new names. Um, Heather, who is over there, will be coming around with a roaming mic. We are recording this, so if you just wait for her to come over, stick your hand up. She will find you. Off we go. Okay, thank you. Okay, is there any questions? <laughs> no? This could be quite quick. <laughs> Hi. Got to keep hold of. <laughs> um, on, when you were showing the um, the pictures and people had to choose the picture, I missed the whole point of um, how they were making the choice and um, how you would how you were okay. learning anything from that. Sure. So basically, what happens is two two images are flashed up very very quickly, and usually one is negative and one is neutral. Say, um, and what happens is that they're often flashed up so quickly people aren't really aware of what's being presented, and then a little target appears in either the left hand side or the right hand side, and people just have to respond to that target in some way. So it might be say an A or a B or a square or a circle. They just press say a left button if it's a square, right button if it's a circle, um, and so what we're measuring is how quickly people respond, and does that depend on whether the target appears in the location of the negative item or the neutral item. So, for example, the idea is that, say, somebody who's very anxious will tend to automatically tune in to the negative. And we know that because they're always faster in responding to the target when it appears where a negative um, picture has been. So the idea is that the reason they're faster is because their attention is already there. They've already you know, sublimely shifted towards that location. So if the target appears there, they're just a little bit quicker. And as a, it's only 40 to 50 milliseconds often, but you know, actually it's, statistically it's quite significant because it's quite reliable. It just happens you know, on about probably 80% of the trials. So. Oh, sorry, Hi. I didn't see that behind the pillar, sorry. Um, just a, a question about interventions for um, to induce optimism. Obviously, the self-help and kind of American self-help industry is quite big. I wondered if there's any evidence for that in terms of increasing optimism. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, and I think one one of the things I was saying in the talk was this idea that you know when we think about optimism, I think we need to think more widely than say just positive thinking. And as you say, particularly in America, I, I did go and give a few talks in America when the book came out there, um, and there's a very strong positive thinking movement, and it's almost you know people are are forced to kind of think positively regardless uh, of, of what's going on. And the whole idea really is that you know the, behind the rainy brain, sunny brain, is that sometimes things don't work out. 
out well. So sometimes, you know, we, we do need to have a healthy dose of pessimism a, a lot of the time. So I think um, there is evidence that we, we can shift people towards a more optimistic state, but I think the kind of things that focus more on things like the other elements, not just positive thinking. Um, obviously, positive thinking is important to some extent, and it's not unrelated, but it's often the kind of positive actions that are important. There's also a whole lot, there's a lot, some very nice research being done, for example, just looking at um, the number of positive and negative emotions we have. And the idea is that there is actually a very precise ratio that's quite important. So a lot of people think, you know, I should try and suppress all the negative emotions, so like anger or fear or whatever. But actually what the research shows that as long as you have three positive emotions for every one negative, that's actually a pretty healthy balance. So when you look at people who are pretty happy and optimistic and healthy, they generally have three you know, good experiences for every bad or, you know, three positive emotions for every one negative emotion. In fact, there's been a lot of work also done on what makes a happy marriage. And the ratio there is actually five to one. So if you have an argument with your partner, <laughs> you should um, have five positive experiences with your partner to try and kind of balance that out. So the idea is that, you know, there is this very precise ratio and that if, if you can keep the ratio right, then that's actually a very, very good way of boosting general well-being and general optimism. It's, and you find, for example, say people with severe depression, they often, the ratio goes in, in the negative direction. So they might have more negative emotions compared to positive. So it's really about, you know, not necessarily suppressing the negative emotions because they're there for a good reason. We, we need a fear system. We need anger. Sometimes we need sadness. You know, they're, they're all there for good reasons. But it's just getting that balance with the positive and negative, right? So. How well does it, ge- oh, God, that's really how well does it generalize out, um, when you have quite a specific, uh, uh, tr- training system? Um, are there any follow-up studies that have been done to test how that generalizes onto other things or? How persistent that is. Yeah, that's a great question. It's a really important question. And I think with a lot of these things, we always start off with very specific things and then see, you know, whether they generalize. So there is a lot of work going on now to see, is that the case? Um, and I think the idea behind a lot of these kind of studies is that yeah, while we use things like, say, negative faces, the idea is it's not just the faces that are important, it's actually what they represent. So, for example, there's been a lot of work recently using lots of negative and kind of scowling faces in groups of teenagers um, who have self-esteem problems. And the idea is that you know, they often process, say, um, disapproving looks, if you like, and, and you know, negative-looking faces as being very disapproving. So the idea is that even though it's just faces, it does actually represent something much wider. You know, and, and that's the kind of idea. So, yes, yeah, so to answer your question, there, there has been, and there are ongoing studies looking at that. And again, there, there needs to be a lot more research done on this idea of shifting biases and how, how that generalizes. But the early indications are pretty positive. Um, there's been some failures, and sometimes the, si- the effect sizes aren't great. But generally, it does look like um, there is some generalization. Um, but as I said, so it's a really important kind of thing. And th- another important thing that I think we need to look at now is how long-lasting some of these effects will be. You know, how can we get m- really more enduring effects? Or is it going to be something like people who have to almost do top-ups on a very regular basis? Yeah, so it's... Hi, is a question here? Hi, yes. First of all, thank you very much for the talk. Very much enjoyed. Um, I was curious about the little test you got us all to do with the out of five scoring and how often you come across the actual extremes of those scores. So the people who score 28, what are they like? Are they a bit freaky? Or, the, you know, the people who score below six as well, that would be quite an interesting... So I was just wondering 
Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, first of all, th those um, six questions w weren't a standardised. They, they were just some questions from the standardised scale. So there are standardised scales you can do lo looking at all of this. I mean, generally speaking, you find that the majority of people are actually quite optimistic. So this is often called an optimism bias or a kind of a positivity illusion. So you know, um, we do find that people are generally quite positive, which is quite surprising in in some ways. Um, but there, there definitely are the extremes, um, and you find you know. Um, I don't know the exa exact percentages, but there are kind of probably about 10% of people who would uh, fall into those kind of extremes. Um, and, and often, you know, there, there can be potential problems there and say on the standardized scale. So somebody who say has severe depression would score really very low. Um, and, you know, sometimes you get less people scoring really, really high, actually. It's, it's, um, it's kind of interesting, but you get more on, on the more extreme lower end. But as I said, most people are actually on the positive side. So it's kind of like a skewed distribution, if you like. So most are on the more positive side. Hi, there's one at the back and then one here. Thank you. Um, I've got two questions, actually, if that's not too greedy. Um, one is about cultural bias. You, you mentioned a lot of experiments that were based around America, seem to be a lot of American. I'm wondering if there's been any research to look at different cultural implications of people from different parts of the world. And the second one is, what about uh, studies at different times? In other words, a period that's known to be stressful or like the Great Depression or wartime, has that shown any differences in, in, in any results? Yeah, okay, again, two, two great questions. I think, first of all, yeah, there, there are quite a lot of cultural um, different studies going, going on. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we all, I mean, obviously, we're talking about all sorts of biases here, but the biggest bias of all is, is our own culture, of course. The way you're brought up does bias you. I was talking to somebody during the break, actually, that, that there is a lot of evidence now showing that people, that your beliefs can really bias your actual perception, like actually what you see. So there's been some really nice studies done with, say, sports fans. So, you know, if you happen to be, say, I don't know, a Manchester United, fan or something, you will actually see a foul quite differently from somebody who supports the opposition. So there really are genuine perceptual differences in, and I think exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so there really are, are perceptual differences. So we, it's almost like we, we kind of, we, we do see what we want to see in, in lots of ways. And of course our cultural biases feed into that, so there's no question that um, our upbringing and our culture in all sorts of ways does have, have a big influence on, on all sorts of things, even at that perceptual level. Um, so I think that's, that's certainly the cultural one is definitely an important one. And it's, it's often quite difficult to incorporate that into a lot of these studies, of course, because you need to get, do very, very big studies. But there are, there are some studies going on um, all over the world, actually. I mean, as you say, a lot of work does go on in the States, but um, there is work going on all over the world, really, and really looking at these, these kind of differences. Um, and what was your second question again? Was the... Oh, the different times, yeah. Again, yeah, again, I mean, I think there's no question that you probably would find differences there. I mean, what we do in these studies is we, I mean, a lot of the work that I do with anxiety, for example, we do tend to test people during periods where they are particularly anxious and not. So rather than looking at the, the wider cultural time, we might say if it was a student population, for example, you can test people, say, just before examination periods compared to early in the academic year. Or I've done a lot of work with, say, people going in for dental surgery. So say just the day before, the very day they're going in compared to another time where they're more relaxed. And you do find that the there's a very nice interaction really between the kind of trait levels, if you like, of anxiety and what happens in that moment. So there's no question that there is, you know, it, it does make a difference depending what the overall kind of feelings are. So it's, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, and what kind of uh, methods can you use to uh, to change somebody's opinion, like to 
somebody who is tuned, tuned in so much into negative uh, thinking, how can you change that into positive? What kind of techniques? Well, there's a, a whole range of ways. I mean, we're, we're looking at a lot of these cognitive bias modification techniques, for example. So some of those are like the ones I described, looking at shifting these very perceptual or attentional biases by these kind of computerized programs where we're actually trying to retrain people's brains to tune in to the more positive. We also There's also a lot of research going on on trying to change people's interpretational biases, which is probably getting closer to what you're talking about. The idea there is that you know, the social world is full of, of ambiguity, really. Um, you know, let's imagine um, you're walking down the street and you see somebody who um, you haven't seen for a long time, say an old friend, and you're, about, you're getting ready to greet them and suddenly they pass, walk right by without saying hello at all. So, you know, you can interpret that in a very positive way. You could say, well, maybe he was busy, you know, maybe he was preoccupied, maybe he didn't recognize me, you know, I've changed my hair since I last saw him or something. Or you could um, interpret it in a very negative way. You could say, he doesn't like me, he didn't want to talk, you know, he snubbed me. So those kind of slight ambiguities can make a huge difference to people. So some of these kind of training paradigms, you, you, um, they're often people are given little scenarios which can either have so very ambiguous scenarios which can then have either a positive or a negative outcome. So again, it's the same kind of thing about trying to, to change that habit of mind, really, to force people almost into a more positive interpretation of those kind of ambiguous. And they can be quite effective, really, in, in, in lots of studies. Hi. But uh, fiddling, fiddling with nature, for example, if, if these two different traits exist for, for so long, there must be an evolutionary reason for them. For example, I don't know, if we take it in the context of a group, you know, we all exist as, as a social animal in a way. If, if the pessimistic type or the, the predisposed for pessimism is the, the one that is the protector type and the other one might be, I don't know, the entertainer type within the group, Aren't we then going to, to, to somehow destabilize a more naturally established balance between the two types if we are nurturing the more yeah. positive all the time? Yeah, absolutely. And again, another, it's another great point you make. And I think the other thing as well, I mean, I think I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, of, of, you know, slipping into the idea that people are optimists or pessimists. And of course, that's not the case. I mean, that's, you know, we, we shouldn't think in black and white like that. Generally, you know, Often we're, we're, we have quite a lot of differences in different parts of our lives. Um, I have a friend, for example, who's very optimistic in terms of her business life, for example, but very pessimistic in terms of her, her love life. So, <laughs> you know, so you do get these kind of differences. So, and I think you're right. And I think one, the reason why I kind of call the book Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain was very much to get at this idea that we need both sides. They're both there for good evolutionary reasons. You know, we really need the pessimistic side of ourselves because things do go wrong. I mean, and, and that's why we have a fear system. We need to be aware of danger. Um, you know, when we're planning our futures, I mean, things will happen, things will go wrong, so we need to plan for them. And I did a lot of interviews, actually, with a lot of very optimistic people, and to really try and get at what, what this was kind of about. And what I end up calling in the book is kind of the, the optimistic realists are the ones who actually are, are the healthiest in many ways. And they're kind of, and what many of them said, you know, they, they more or less said, it's not that they were kind of optimistic all the time, but they had this strong sense that no matter what happened, in the end they'd be able to cope with it, they'd be able to deal with it. So even though they might be very well aware that actually things weren't going to work out in certain areas, they, they just felt that they could still cope with that. 
Um, for example, you know, I met the actor Michael J. Fox, for example, was one person who, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease when he was very young, actually, I about 28, 29. And you know, he said he knew straight away that that would end his Hollywood career, that there was no way he would be able to continue acting. But he said at the same time, he just had this deep-rooted belief that he would be able to deal with that, that something else would come up, he'd be able to do something else, he would be able to cope with it. So it's that kind of sense of, it's not, you know, being overly positive and thinking everything's going to be wonderful. It's being very aware that, things are going to go wrong and this, this is really going to have a big impact on me but somehow being optimistic in the longer term that you're going to be able to to deal with it and and as you say I think we absolutely need a kind of a mixture really both between people but even within ourselves I think in different areas of our lives sometimes it pays to be a bit more optimistic sometimes it pays to be a bit more pessimistic so in the book I do try and argue that the ideal thing is to have a kind of a nice balance between the rainy brain and the sunny brain it's when either side gets too out of, of balance that you know, we start developing problems really Hi, um, are you aware of any uh, studies looking at the effect of antidepressants on um, positivity and negativity, these sorts of biases? Yes, yeah, there's actually, funnily enough, there's a, a lot of really nice research going on here in Oxford, and there's a woman called Catherine Harmer, who's doing a lot of work in the Department of Psychiatry, looking at the impact of antidepressants on, on negative memory biases. And it's very interesting, one of the um, really strange things about antidepressants is that the biological effects take place more or less instantly, certainly within a day, you get changes in, in brain biochemistry but the clinical effects don't actually occur for several weeks later, often up to seven or eight weeks later before people actually feel any different. So that, that's always been a really difficult thing to explain like why is that that we know you know neurochemically the change is happening within a day but yet you're not getting any change in clinical symptoms for, for up to you know often a month or more and and what Catherine has found is that when people take antidepressants that starts changing the negative bias fairly quickly so depressed people for example have this very strong tendency to selectively remember all the negative stuff that happened compared to the positive so that kind of negative bias is neutralized by antidepressants and her argument is that once that bias changes, that really helps people in their social interactions because they now don't have these negative memories all the time, you know, and, and their kind of their their interpretation isn't as negative as it was. The idea is that then they can actually go out and interact with people in a much more positive way and get a lot more positive feedback and remember more of the positive stuff. And it's actually that that over time is leading to the benefit. So in other words, the antidepressant is working through changing the negative bias, which is why we're also now trying to look at a lot of these other methods of changing biases, you know, non-drug as well as drug methods. I was thinking about your story about the voodoo and the lizard. Yes. Uh, in relation to an audience of skeptics. And wondering how skeptical we should be or whether you were testing us. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, often we are very skeptical. And um, as I said, there are these wonderful stories in, in the medical literature of, of all of these cases. But I think there's absolutely no doubt there is really solid evidence now that our beliefs really can have a big impact on our health. Um, as I said, it's, it's not all about positive thinking. But, you know, I think if, if, if people do have very, very strong beliefs, that really does lead to physical changes. In, in all sorts of ways. And, uh, you know, I mean, all the work on the placebo effect shows that, for example. There's also a thing called the nocebo effect, which is when if, if you believe something will harm you, it, it will, it, it will end up actually causing physical problems. So I think really there is, you know, a lot of evidence. It often is overhyped as well. I mean, uh, you know, I do accept that, but I think there is actually also a lot of evidence that, you know, these belief systems really can, um, lead to all sorts of problems. And if people do start changing those beliefs, they can, uh, you know, get all sorts of benefits. Uh, actually, I have two questions. 
the first one is about the taxi drivers. So we saw that they had an increase in the hippocampus. Uh, does it shrink back if they stop to be taxi drivers? And the second question is, is there any other part of the brain that also increases in size if we train it? Or is just limited to an increase in the connection of the brain? Yeah, well, the, the first answer is yes, it does. If people don't regularly practice whatever it is they're doing, you do get a, a kind of shrink back again. So, the, And that's one of the really interesting things. The brain does seem to be very malleable. It really does change. Um, and also... To answer your second question, there are, there are lots of studies looking at lots of other areas of the brain. Um, I mentioned, I think, musicians, for example. There's a lot of work. So people say who are, are guitarists, you find that the areas of the brain that deal with finger movement get much stronger and grow much stronger if somebody plays guitar, whereas um, like different types of instruments, you get different areas of the brain. So it does seem that you know, almost any area of the brain can be strengthened by these kind of skills if you really learn new skills, particularly most of the evidence, the strongest evidence comes from motor skills. So things like well, I suppose the spatial memory isn't really a motor skill, but, but certainly a lot of the work is done with people like, um, say, pianists and guitarists and musicians of, of all sorts. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that there is a lot of evidence, a lot of, and that's kind of the logic we're using to say, well, we know that there are these circuits underlying optimism and pessimism, so can we also try and shift those? They can be a bit trickier because we're, we're going quite deep into the brain and looking at circuits between very ancient areas of the brain with newer areas of the brain, whereas a lot of the changes are in the cortex. But, um, but I think, you know, the evidence is that actually the whole brain does seem to be pretty malleable, um, which is not to say it's easy to change. I think that's one of the things that um, the evidence shows that uh, we can change and these different areas of the brain can change, but it requires a lot of effort. Um, just like, you know, as I was saying, if you, uh, if you want to get physically fit, you know, you have to keep working at it. If you just do a bit of exercise once in the blue moon, it probably won't make too much difference. But if you stick with it all the time, it, it will make a difference. So I think it's a little bit like that with these kind of brain training, if you like, systems, that if, if you really keep practicing and practicing on one particular thing, that does lead to changes. Well, hello. Wow, this is loud. Uh, thanks very much for the talk. But I was actually wondering, um, something I've heard about in the world of self-improvement psychology is uh, therapy through music. How some people in there are actually being trained to, you know, kind of um, respond more positively to day-to-day -day life stimuli. They've been trained to just uh, turn the volume on more kind of positive music as opposed to what they're usually listening to and so on and so forth. But I was just wondering about your opinions on that because um, there have also been psychologists who argue that perhaps when somebody's used to kind of creating soundtracks for a life, on the bus ride home in the car, you know, listening to certain music, which does affect them, that it's actually be better to not listen to any at all and kind of learn to sort of let your brain sort of just uh, develop and live on its own as you're mm -hmm. trying to adapt new beliefs which may affect a person. Um, I was wondering about your opinion on that. Yeah, well, again, it's very interesting. And uh, I think there is a lot of work on all sorts of things that can shift our mood states, like, like music, for example. There's no doubt music definitely can shift our, our mood um, very, very strongly, like watching a movie can or lots of different things. I think one of the difficulties is that it's not actually that difficult to shift mood states in the short term. But the key thing is actually shifting things in, in the longer term. And that's where I think a lot of 
things like music kind of fall down in a sense. They're very good in the short term, but actually the effects dissipate very, very quickly. And um, I had a PhD student, for example, who did a whole study comparing trying to shift um, cognitive biases and mood states um, by music. So she actually compared music and, and these cognitive bias modification techniques. So the, the idea of shifting people's um, interpretation biases, as, as I was talking about earlier, that tends to be, it's much more, you, you give people all these ambiguous scenarios and then they have a positive outcome. Now, of course, one of the things that does, as well as shifting the bias, it also shifts people moods, people's mood states, so they, they feel much happier after they do that. So her question was, well, if we do the same thing, if we have the same degree of mood shift, say, with music, is that just going to be just as good? And what she found was very interesting. So she did one of these cognitive bias modification training paradigms with these scenarios, um, and then she had a musical induction as well. And she found the degree of mood change was identical. Everyone felt much happier after these interventions. But in terms of lots of other measures of stress reactivity, particularly 24 hours later, it was only the cognitive bias modification that actually had the longer-lasting effects. So the mood effects from the music went very quickly but the cognitive modification effects actually lasted much longer so I think that's often the problem with a lot of things that can have a big impact in the short term may not necessarily lead to more enduring changes so I really kind of think we need to get under the skin if you like and into these cognitive biases and really try and shift those um, to, to a bigger extent to have more permanent type changes Although as permanent, as, as we said earlier, these plasticity things are never really permanent in a sense. You know, they, if, if people don't stick with things, they will shift back again. So, Which is why I think it makes it very hard to change, really. I just came across, came across an article in some um, online psychology database for... Um, uh, which claimed that it takes 21 days to develop a new cognitive habit of thinking a certain way, but 21 days straight in a row, and that after a 10-day bout, there's sort of a feeling of doubt coming in and so on and so forth. Um, have you ever heard of anything like that, or is that just uh, mumbo-jumbo? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure, to be honest, off the top of my head, what, what, what that study is. But um, again, there has been a lot of studies looking at how you know, how, how quickly you can shift these. As I said, a lot of these kind of things are still in the fairly early stages of really shifting. And I think one of the big questions is how long do the effects last? Um, I mean, things like, say, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and like more well-established therapies, they definitely do induce changes. If people stick with it and keep doing all of the exercises, those changes can actually last reasonably for, for a long time. But there's no doubt that there does come a point where if people don't continue doing whatever it is, that, you know, the, things will slip back. So we, we do tend to be drawn back to our normal state, if you like, so it can be hard to, to shift that. So I don't know the precise answer in terms of the precise, I haven't heard of a precise 21 days, you know, that may well be true or not, but, um, but there definitely is evidence that, you know, you do need to kind of keep doing things on a, on a kind of regular basis to keep, keep improvement going, really. Sorry, second question okay. for me then. Um, something that you said at the very beginning of your talk really struck me, that we're not born into this world as a blank slate. And I'm quite interested in this because it's kind of the area I'm interested in, philosophy. But in your opinion as a psychologist who's looked into these thoughts quite a lot, how well prepared are we when we're born into this world? How much does our mind sort of prepare us for the big wide world out there? Is, it, is there a really heavy presence or is it quite light? Is it quite adaptable or is it quite um, innate, yeah. I suppose? 
I think I think it's it's it is very very adaptable. That's one of the things. And and I mean, it's interesting when you look kind of if you go up the evolutionary scale, you find it, it's more adaptable in a sense. So there are some animals who it's almost completely like some animals will just move towards the light, for example, and nothing will change that. With humans, we have a very complex nervous system, so there's a huge room for adaptability, huge room for change. Um, but nevertheless, there are some you know, quite strong steers, if you like. And I think that's why I was saying like two of the major steers are things that are potentially harmful, definitely pull our attention, and things that are, um, are, are potentially good for us. So, for example, you know, babies will usually come to the edge of a, a steep step and they won't go over it. There's a very nice experiment. If you look in, in any first-year psychology book, it's, it's all, they often show a nice photograph. There's a thing called the visual cliff illusion, which is a very nice experiment, where it's a, basically a table with a kind of a checkerboard pattern. And there's a huge big cliff in the middle of the table so it kind of goes along and then shifts down but there's glass over the entire table so the baby can't actually fall down and what they do is, it sounds a bit cruel, but they put a baby on one side of the table, and then the baby's mother goes on the other side of the table and tries to encourage the baby to come over. And basically, almost no babies will go over the cliff. Once they come to the middle of the table where they see the cliff, even though they can feel a solid surface, they won't cross over it. So it's a really powerful demonstration that vision outweighs touch, in a sense. So even with their mother kind of really encouraging them to come over, the babies will look down and they just won't go over that visual cliff. So I think there are some very inbuilt kind of survival mechanisms there. But compared to many other um, you know, animals, um, I think we, we do have a lot more adaptability. So I think we've got more, much more potential to change. But I think there are some very deep survival mechanisms that are, are very hard to shift, with good reason, obviously. It's... Hi. I don't think you've said this, but I think in our culture, we rate optimism much more highly than pessimism. And that we all want to be optimists, and we all want each other to be optimists. And I question whether that isn't actually a totally false ambition, and whether it isn't totally delusional. But it's far more interesting to see whether we're how delusional we're each being, rather than how optimistic or pessimistic we're each being. And for me, there's big questions about the cultural bias of all this study. If most of the people studied belong to the more educated, more affluent part of the world at the end of the 20th century, meaning the 21st how much they can feel genuinely optimistic because of their experience when many humans in human culture can't because of their experience. So to me, it's how much delusion or correlation to reality and experience Mm. totally intersect differently from the optimism-pessimism framework. Again, a very, very interesting question. And I think one of the interesting things about um, this thing often called the optimism bias or the positivity illusion, it actually is called an illusion. And it often is. I mean, often, I talked a bit earlier, one of the features of optimism is that people have the sense of control over what they're doing and control over their own destiny. Now, there's lots of quite nice experiments showing that that actually is quite delusional. But nevertheless, it does seem to be quite good for us in, in many ways. So, for example, a very simple experiment showing that is um, you people add, there's all these different kind of flashing lights that flash in a different sequence, and people are told to just press buttons. And the question is, do they think they have any control over the flashing lights? And it turns out the lights are actually quite random. But people who score more highly in optimism have a really strong sense they have some degree of control 
over over the the um, the lights coming on and off. So even though it's a real illusion, it does seem to actually have a lot of benefit in terms of particularly in the business world of people you know trying harder, if you like. So in some ways, I mean, and some people actually argue that that up, that positivity illusion is actually really good for us. It's it's one of the the reasons why we have our curiosity, why we kind of explore you know all of these different things. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I think I, I think it is true that in a lot of cultures optimism is given a higher value if you like when it, it shouldn't necessarily be um, but on the other hand I think there are a lot of those kind of benefits that even if it is an illusion sometimes it's, it's quite a beneficial illusion um, even though optimism might be a bit more accurate a lot of the time but even there actually I, I just say I mean I don't know whether some of you might be aware there was this thing called um, what, what was it called the uh, oh, the name is just slipping now but there was there was a nice kind of finding the idea that um, people who are more certainly uh, depressive realism that's the word I was trying to find so depressive realism was the idea that people who are more depressed and deeply pessimistic say are actually more realistic um, for a long time that was seen as the case a lot of experiments seemed to demonstrate that um, however what they then found was that people who are very depressed they tend to be much more realistic about themselves often or certainly more negative or realistic about themselves in different situations but they're, they don't have that kind of um, illusion if you like in terms of talking about other people so you get this difference if you're say is this a lucky person or an unlucky person depressed people are actually um, quite accurate in their own um, analyzing their own lives but they're very inaccurate in analyzing other people's lives so they really do believe that actually other people are much luckier than them and do much better and you know have all sorts of benefits so in a sense you know when we're looking at delusions and stuff it's it is actually quite difficult because sometimes those things even though they might be a delusion can actually be a, a real benefit which is why I think they're extremely difficult to shift a lot of the time. For me, the interesting question is how that whole issue cuts across what I call cultural denial. So we have big questions about, as a culture and as a species, are we facing an apocalyptic situation or an, you know, a wonderful future? And how we emotionally respond to that is tied in with our sense of optimism or pessimism. Mm. And I'm curious about having a grounding in reality if we focus on, it's better to be optimistic. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it is. I mean, again, I suppose this comes back to the issue I was saying earlier that it's, you know, I think we need to think more widely than just positive thinking. So I think there is more to optimism than the, just the positive thinking. But I think you're right. I mean, I think we, we do need a bit of a grounding in reality. And a lot of the time, people do try and deny that. And I think, as I was saying, particularly this kind of positive thinking movement, which often tries to force people to think positively in every situation when clearly, you know, there's a lot of situations that aren't particularly positive. So I think we do need that kind of grounding in, in reality. Um, but I think, again, there's more, there's, there are other components to optimism that aren't just to do with, with that kind of positive thinking, really. So it's you mentioned, you mentioned uh, something which sounded like the uh, locus of control uh, that people assign to themselves. Um, but I have concerns about that because I tend to think that People who overassume uh, or overestimate their own sense of self-control tend to overestimate the control of other people, and it becomes a stick with which the downtrodden are kind of beaten. Um, do you have an answer to that? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I really have an answer. I think I think that that can be the case. Um, again, I mean, I think there is a lot of evidence that having a sense of control in your own life is 
can, can be important. I mean, one of the um, experiments, for example, I talked about in the book was a very nice study that was done in a nursing home, in, in, again, in the States. A lot of this work does seem to be done in the States, um, where they basically, they gave everybody in this nursing home a plant and a movie they could watch. Um, and they divided people into different floors. So one floor, everyone was given the same plant and, you know, and a movie to watch. On one floor, the people were told what night they could watch their movie and one of the nurses watered their plant for them, so they had no particular control over their plant. On the other floor, they had exactly the same things, but they were asked when they'd like to watch their own movie and they were given responsibility for looking after their own plant. So if they couldn't physically do it themselves, they would ask a nurse to water the plant, that kind of thing. And the general health benefits were actually quite dramatic. The people who had that little sense of control, it really made a huge difference to, to their lives. So I think that kind of control and that sense of having some sense that you have a, a degree of control around your environment um, can be very, very powerful. Yes. Yes, that's right. And I think, and that may, you know, that, as I said, that, that often is a key element. Um, and I think that's kind of where this illusion of control can come from, which again, there is evidence showing that even the illusion of control can, can be a real kind of benefit. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think often we kind of end up in thinking very black and white terms about these kind of issues. So I think you're right that if we all know people are overly controlled, if, if people really think they can control every single part of their life, that's where it kind of tips into, something that isn't particularly beneficial. So I think in a lot of these situations, it is about getting the balance kind of right. It's kind of having a sense of control, but also being aware that actually there are certain things you can't control. But you know, possibly you can control how you deal with it. You know, it's, it's, I think there are kind of those subtle differences, really, and I think we just need to find that kind of balance, really. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.